Hello, and welcome to Animation Celery. Crunchy conversations about classic cartoons. The battle hinges on how I use my sword and what it singes. I'm Micah. And I'm Matsy. We are going to be talking about cartoons. We are going to be talking about the Addams Family. We're going to be talking about Return to the Planet of the Apes. But first, we're going to talk about whatever we want. Micah, what do you want to talk about? Okay, well... Uh, after we recorded last time, we uh, talked about the, the the chore of finding 70s cartoons to watch. Yep. Yeah, so I let you in on some of the ones that I kind of, you know, gave a sniff to, to and then felt like, ah, this isn't good enough. Mm-hmm. Um, one of those was a show called Mission Magic. Huh. <laughs> Funny enough, it's not good, but okay. it's apparently pretty watchable because I've watched some more of it. <laughs> uh, so uh, it's this weird show. It's sort of a precursor to the Magic School Bus, but it's two decades ahead of its time. Okay. And and there's nothing educational about it. Right. Uh, it's So it's about a school club, uh, the Adventurers Club, and uh, a teacher, Miss Tickle, leads it. So no, Miss Tickle, Miss Tick, yeah, it's pretty clever, huh? Yeah. Um, so when the group convenes, there's a gramophone in the classroom, and it contacts uh, musician Rick Springfield in another dimension. <laughs> what a weird pull! <laughs> I guess in the '70s that wouldn't have been as weird a pull. I think it is. Like yeah. he's known for Jesse's Girl, right? Oh uh, yeah. All, I guess. all the songs, yeah. All the songs I can think of are '80s songs. I guess that's true. Yes. But yeah, I guess he was like a, a up and coming kind of teeny bopper in the seventies, right? <laughs> I don't so, know the complete history of Rick Springfield. Well, <laughs> so he, yeah, he's like from a, he's in other dimensions, and he'll you know he'll just come out from the gramophone and say like, uh, "Hey, you've got to come quick! Somebody's destroying all music in this dimension," <clears throat> and uh, <laughs> so. It prompts Miss Tickle, then uh, she animates a cat statue as her familiar, and she draws a door on the chalkboard, and then she and the students go through it and fly to the other dimension. Okay. Yeah, so like the students, this is a Lou Scheimer production, so like the students are a mishmash of archetypes. You can kind of think of it like Fat Albert. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So like one of them has a crush on Rick. One's a real wise guy. And then there's like a chubby one and a sloppy one who are at odds with each other. <laughs> uh, oh, man. There's one whose deal is that he's tall for his age. So like all of his lines are that way. So like one of them is like, I'll try to sing, but I can only hit high notes. Boo. <laughs> <laughs> well, like I said, it's not good, but you know, and th- then there's like the, the leader of the, of the club who's only there to give exposition. Right. But. Oh, um, sure, yeah. She's the boring one. Yeah. Um, so, like, you can think of what, a, like, a Lou Scheimer production or, like, later Filmation looks like, mm. right? Yeah. Where, like, all the main characters have a lot of repeat animation. What's you a, know? what's another, what's a, what's a Lou Scheimer that people might immediately recognize? Uh, Fat Albert, I think mm. Adventures of Zorro. Oh, yeah, okay, yeah. Um, yeah, Adventures of Waldo Kitty. 
And then Filmation, of course, people would immediately know the Masters of the Universe. Yeah, and, and Star Trek. and um, Yeah. So, you know, that kind of looks like where the, uh, the main characters have repeat animations and everything is kind of like polished, uh, but maybe a little stiff too, right? Sure. They did one thing well and then just cut and paste that one thing where they needed it. Right. And so, like, the main characters of the show, they more or less look like Archie comics. <laughs> but the places right. they go to are more cartoony and fluid. Um, huh. It looks really weird. Like, the first episode's really jarring to see, like, the people walking around uh, are... <laughs> they look like maybe they'd be in a Pink Panther cartoon. Okay. Mm, um, the backgrounds are all, like, a little bit psychedelic, too. But anyway, the... It kind of, it flows to the villains being that way too, right? So like, uh, one of the villains, his henchman, really reminded me of the blue meanies from Yellow Submarine. Okay, yep. Um, That's uh, something we should watch sometime. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, it's also also kind of funny, right? Because they're kind of small, often, because yeah. they're in this cartoony style. Yeah. And I wonder, like, are they supposed to be like that? But also, sometimes the kids are, like, running them down, right? Like, get those crooks! So I think they're worried about being overpowered by these child-sized uh, regular humans. <laughs> um, but even besides that, uh, Miss Tickle is, uh, she can totally overwhelm them with her magical powers, right? <laughs> she's, she's OP. And she's all got like um, the, the latch on her purse when she turns it controls the direction of their flight. <sighs> and then like she has more conventional stuff like uh, she has like a... Uh, a rubber eraser, but sometimes it's her uh, chalkboard eraser and it can just get rid of things, erase them from existence. Man. Yeah. Yeah. Um, she has a slide rule that can change the size of things. Right. And like her enemies have nothing near this level. <laughs> That's... Um, one of the things that makes the show really nice is the, the voices are pretty good in it, but, I, I mistook uh, Miss Tickle at first. I thought she would, was the same one as Adora and She-Ra. Not hmm. at all, though. But uh, pretty pleasant to listen to. Uh, Lola hmm. Fisher. Not really known. She's a, like a, a musician, but not really known for other voice acting. Okay. Um, she's no Lily Tomlin. <laughs> so, like, one of the things in there is I wonder if Rick is supposed to be magical. Hmm. Because he's he's calling them from other dimensions and he himself has an owl familiar, but he doesn't really like, he doesn't really do anything magical in the show unless you count his music segments that, you know, are like that standard seventies cartoon music segment madness, you know? Oh yeah. 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 Where there's like a guitar, some drums and a tambourine and that's your band. Right. And, and like, like there's uh capers that are decidedly cartoony going on. Hmm. That, you know, like, go beyond what would normally happen. <laughs> I think it's funny that there's bits where uh, they're chasing people. And so Miss Tickle makes all the students fly, but he still has to run. <laughs> I think I think, I think what they are, to me, is like they have a uh, Mary Poppins and Birdie sort of relationship. He's a little bit magical. Okay. Yeah, all right. The, the Mary Poppins thing makes sense. Because you're saying a whole bunch of stuff, and... I cannot congeal it in my brain into a single <laughs> TV show. Like, it just sounds like 
the most bonkers madness. Like I can't, I can't imagine. I'm in my head. This is so crazy that I'm picturing it as anime, and oh. I know that it's not. Well, it lo- it looks like Lou Scheimer, right? Yeah, I mean, yeah. It's it's empty calories. <laughs> I'll, I'll I'll screenshot this for you so you can. Uh... So that's what Miss Tickle and Rick's Rick look like in the show. <laughs> All right. I, at, at least I have a, a foundation in my brain now. It still sounds crazy. <laughs> well, like I say, ch- check it out because yeah. it's, I don't know, maybe there's some kind of warm feeling for those, you know, crummy Lou Shimer cartoons. Something about like. the look on Rick Springfield, like his face. Yeah. Really looks like in Homestar Runner when they did the, um, the limousine cartoon. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's like, this is just how all 70s cartoons draw rock stars. Yeah, well, he gets to be flattering, I guess. Everyone else looks a little a little goony. But. Yeah, yeah. Boy, Miss Tickle's waist is so small. Yeah. The, uh, the music on the show, like, he made it all. Uh, yeah. A lot of it's no good, right? A lot of it's, like, pretty thin. Mm. But one of the episodes that I watched... The whole musical segment was uh, dead because I guess they're worried about a, a copyright strike. <laughs> oh, great! So maybe it was something from his, uh, like his uh, professional catalog or whatever. But. Yeah, yeah. Huh. Anyway, that's my little time waster of the week. Uh, what have you been up to? Well, aside from more, my life as a teenage robot, which I won't talk about. Um, I. I don't know how this happened. Sometimes you go on YouTube and a thing pops up on the side and you click on it and one thing leads to another and that's all YouTube wants you to watch. Hmm. Um, I haven't been watching full episodes, but I've been watching a lot of clips of Beavis and Butthead. Oh, yeah. And it's really strange how that show fascinates you. Mm-hmm. Like... It's dumb as heck, hmm. but it's still entertaining to watch. Sometimes it's pretty smart, though. It is. And that's the thing. Like, Mike Judge, that's the weird thing, is to wrap your head around. Because the thing about Mike Judge, he made King of the Hill. He hmm. made Office Space. Yes. Like, he is obviously a smart uh, television and movie maker. Mm-hmm. And it's so weird, like, to think on a surface level about Beavis and Butthead. It seems like this weird outlier, and you have to kind of remind yourself of the mind behind it. Hmm. And, but you're right, it is smart. Like, I actually, part of this led me to reading uh, Roger Ebert's uh, printed review of the 1996 movie, Beavis and Butthead to America. Right. And he sort of, you know, opinions of Roger Ebert can vary, but he kind of summed it up nicely when he's like, it was basically Beavis and Butthead are the worst people, but normal and smart things are happening around them. And it's yeah. like, it lets you really see society when you have like the absolute bottom line or the, the, the absolute rock bottom of society viewing the rest of society in a vacuous way. Right. Yeah, it's... 
I mean, it's just, it's just such a dumb cartoon, but it's also amusing. And, you know, it's a smart guy behind it. Well, it, it didn't debut very well, right? Like it, it had, the first cartoon was Frog Baseball, right? Oh yeah, right. So, I mean, it finds its footing once it goes from the perspective that you're not supposed to like, well, you do like these guys, but these guys are terrible and they're stupid as heck. Yes. Yeah. Those early ones, you know, not really so much. Yeah. I mean, there's South Park is like that too, where Mm. the focus of the early episodes is the gross out aspect of it. And eventually they kind of realize, you know, that's not the interesting thing about this concept. I don't know. It's just dumb humor. It's like, you know, here's this perfectly ordinary situation and here are the dumbest people imaginable to deal with it. Um, Hmm. And then you just get to watch the antics. This also led to YouTube saying, well, hey, why don't you watch some clips of Daria? Okay. Daria is a show that I have not watched at all. I've never seen an episode Mm. of that show. I don't think I've watched a full one either. The clips I've seen kind of annoyed me because Mm. it was two characters, Daria and her friend, who I think might be named Jane. Mm. And they both just talk in such a sarcastic monotone. Right. Um, And it's fine if there's a character that does that, but it's both of them having conversations to each other in the same tone. Yeah. And I, I kind of don't like, uh, well, I guess it depends, but characters that are purely a mouthpiece for the author. Yeah. Like that's kind of what she is. Right. I think, I mean, maybe we should give it a try. Mm. Maybe it's better than that. Yeah. It's it's not a Mike judge thing though. Right. I don't believe so. I don't yeah. think he was involved with it. Though he's all over the place, right? Like Office Space is a great movie. Yeah. And and Beavis and Butthead's pretty cool. And uh but King of the Hills just kind of weird, right? Like it's sometimes it's written very well, but it's almost never funny to me. I think King of the Hill, I've I've given a lot of thought to King of the Hill for some reason. Mm-hmm. Because like that's another thing where clips pop up on YouTube all the time, and maybe that's why YouTube fed me Beavis and Butthead. But mm. I think King of the Hill has some of the best character concepts in a mm. cartoon. Like thinking about think about the the whole Dale Gribble situation, where you have Dale Gribble, who is this conspiracy theorist who thinks that he knows everything that's really going on and yet is completely oblivious to the perfectly obvious things happening all around him. Ah, yeah. Well, like that his wife's cheating on him. Like, and that's another thing. Like, like think about the concepting of this, right? Oh, here's this character whose wife has been having an affair with this other character for years. And he doesn't know it, even though his son is obviously biracial. Right. Like who comes up with a concept like that? Like his dad later on, like is it's the same thing. Like there's an episode where his estranged dad shows up and it turns out that Mm -hmm. his dad is gay and Dale doesn't realize it at all. Um, Hmm. again, perfectly obvious things happening around him. And also on that note, uh, Dale is an exterminator, right? He hates his dad and his dad's name is bug. Ah, I, that is pretty, now you're telling me this, like you're framing this. This is pretty funny. When you actually watch the show, is it very funny? It has good gags. 
Mm. Little, you know, it's a good show to watch two minute clips of on YouTube. Watching an entire episode, maybe not so much. The funny parts of it are really funny. The stories of it, maybe not so much. I think it annoys me a little bit that any time a new character is introduced in that show, they're going to be an antagonist. Like, mm. There's never a character who shows up who is going to be an ally of the family. Well, mm. I, I shouldn't say that. I can think of one who was sort of an a pawn. Like he, he was a good person, but he was kind of being pawned around by the people around him who were antagonistic to the main characters. Mm-hmm. But, but that's exact, but that's exactly it. Like, you know, here's a new character is introduced and even through no fault of his own, even if he's not a bad person, the new character is going to be the source of antagonism, usually as the enemy. There's almost no instances where a new character shows up and they're like, Oh, I need some help. And then they're, the 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 main cast is helping that character against someone else. The new character is the thing that everybody has to fight against. Right. You know, uh, different kinds of shows, but the same thing. This this always bugs me when all of their allies they meet right away, right? Mm-hmm. Like, and sometimes it'll be converting an enemy into an ally. Yeah. So it'll be you know like uh, you know. So-and-so is no longer control of you, but now you can make a difference, right? Or that kind of thing. Yeah. And then everyone else they meet is just a villain. They Because they didn't meet them in the first six weeks, right? <laughs> yeah. There's, yes, yes. Like, th- that kind of cut and dried, like, you know, here's our list of characters, hero, villain. Th- that's not interesting, especially when there are so many smart cartoons that have come out since then that have played with that idea so much. Adventure Time. Right. Adventure Time is a fantastic example of that. Like when you think about, have you watched all of Adventure Time? No, I've not. I mean, I've watched a bunch of, I've probably watched more than I think I have. Mm. The arc of the Ice King, Mm. where he starts out as just the purest, basest villain, like literally the basest villain. His whole entire motivation is to capture princesses. And pretty quickly, he becomes a very sympathetic character. He is in the grand scheme of that show. He is not a villain for very long at all. Mm. And there's a lot of characters like that where there are very few characters in adventure time that are just villains for the sake of being villains or, or even, you know, shades of gray, like tree trunks, you know, tree trunks is a perfectly nice little old lady elephant. Okay. But she can't stand princess bubblegum. Huh? Hey, Ice King, Ice King and uh, SpongeBob, same voice actor, right? Yes, Tom Kenny. Right. That's range. It is. Mm. Tom Kenny is one of the best. I remember, I can't remember what cartoon it was, but there was some cartoon I was watching where I was, I was like, oh, who's this voice actor? I know, I know it. And it turned out to be Mm. Tom Kenny. And I was totally embarrassed that I didn't realize it. Hmm. He's, he's tremendous. Yeah. Yeah. I I was thinking back to King of the Hill. I thought about it a little bit too lately. I was thinking... I've always thought Beavis and Butthead, you can argue that it's worse looking than King of the Hill, mm. but I think it, I think it fits, right? Like Beavis and Butthead's funny to look at. Yeah. Um, like it's, it's definitely more in line with like, if you look on YouTube, you can find some of like Mug Judge's early, early animations. Yes. The most notable one would be 
whatever his name is with the stapler, which... Well, those were called Office Space, right? Th- those, those segments. Well, yeah, like that's... Like I had actually watched... Because that character, the Steven Root character in Office Space is based on those that early animation. Mm. And so I had already seen that animation when I watched Office Space. And so I mm. kind of was, oh, I know where this story is going. I've seen this character. Heh. He, he he sounds like Beavis and Butthead's elderly neighbor, though, right? <laughs> um, well, he's Stephen Root. Yeah. Well, I, well, I guess it depends. Like, I assume that in the I haven't watched that animation in a while, but I'm assuming in the pencil or the early animation, it was Mike Judge doing the voice. And oh no, no, yeah, he's doing kind of meek, like yeah, okay. yeah, yeah, yeah. So like I said, Stephen, it's Stephen Root in the movie. Stephen Root is the yeah, voice yeah. of like Bill in King of the Hill, and um. Also, okay. Finn's dad in Adventure Time. Um, hmm. But, yeah, Mike Judge, for an elderly neighbor, like, that's just the Hank Hill voice. Yeah, that's someone, someone, yeah, yeah. Mr. Yeah. Anderson. Um, I watched the opening sequence of Beavis and Butthead do America. I have seen the whole mm-hmm. movie, but just recently I just watched that opening sequence. And the opening yeah. sequence is, like, Beavis, or it's Butthead dreaming that Beavis and Butthead are giant, like, Godzilla-style guys stomping around town. Mm-hmm. And so there are human, like people, normal people running away from them. Yeah. And that's where you can see the King of the Hill. Where it's like, oh, once okay. it's been refined a little bit, and it's like, now we're drawing people for real with a budget. It's like, this is how... Oh, that's it, funny. Yeah. <laughs> that's funny, because that's, that's just like good enough to be bad, though. Yeah. Right? Because I, I always dump on King of the Hill. It's just like, this show is a little bit ugly. It is. But I've gotten some perspective over time, though, right? To where like... Uh, so many shows come out and, you know, uh, like like primetime sort of cartoons, you know? Yeah. And most of the time, I'm just flat out disappointed in the way they look. Mm. Right. Well, like, I'll, p- I'll pick on the uh, front runner. I'll say Family, family Guy, mm. right? Yes. Family Guy's a visual look with no ambition. No. There's There's nothing worth remembering when you look at Family Guy characters, right? Not really. Yeah. And so that kind of... Uh, lifts up the king of the hill boat, you know, <laughs> to yeah. where I say king of the king of the hill at least has an identity, you know. Yeah, like they they look like people. Like with Family Guy, it's clear that Seth MacFarlane was like, oh, well, let me draw a baby, and then he drew a baby, and it's like, okay, now let me draw a woman, and it's like there's a different, there's like a different visual style for all of them, and they're all eh. like nothing. Yeah. Oh yeah. 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 Like I don't know, Family Guy is a whole other conversation. Um, no, but you know, like a lot of those cartoons that come out now are, are like that. We just, they get pumped out. Right. And you can see the same. Infl- well, maybe the key is I just don't like what they look like, but yeah, it, it, it varies. Like as long, if it has a consistent look, like you think about, um, Bob's burgers or the great North, you could say what you want about the, the visual style of them, but at least all the characters look like they're cut from the same mold. Like they all look yeah. like they're from the same universe. Yeah, Bob's Burgers is one that that I felt let me down when I, you know, that's why I didn't really give it much of a chance. As I looked at it and thought, ugh, this, there's kind of a fine line. Like, did you ever watch Tuca and Birdie? Oh, yeah. Yeah, like, to me, that's got just that little twist of panache. A little bit. I mean, it's, that's a different thing because it's mostly animals. Sure. But I, I mean, there were things, Tuca and Birdie, I liked that it just had this really playful style to it. Like mm-hmm. the opening sequence with um, buildings with bare breasts bouncing to the music. Like, <laughs> yeah. okay. 
or the, or there's a sequence early on where she's looking around the apartment um because like her boyfriend wants to put something of his there because he hasn't put his stamp on the apartment and there's this shot that pans around the apartment and a little uh tag indicating ownership appears on every object in the apartment and it's all birdies except for uh, yeah, yeah. like this one thing of his so they're like there's like some there's a bit in there where there's a, like a performance and the MC addressed like ladies, gentlemen, animals, and sometimes inanimate objects. How does this universe even work? Yeah, 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 yeah. I remember <laughs> that one. I know that episode. It's funny. I watched Tuka and Birdie before I watched BoJack Horseman. Oh yeah. And so, I, my my reaction was like Tuka and Birdie didn't get renewed for a second season. I think another, I think another network like Hulu picked it up. And so there will be a second season, but not on Netflix. Um, Mm. And everyone was disappointed. Mm -hmm. And I was like, Oh, that's too bad. I I would have watched a second season of this. And then I watched Bojack Horseman. And I kind of went, Oh, I understand why there wasn't a second season of Tuka and Birdie now, because there's already six other seasons of it. It is a different show, yeah. but maybe not different enough. Oh, I see, what, I see what you're saying. I don't particularly like it that much, but a lot of people, a lot of people really think it's like a sensitive look at depression and maybe it is eventually. I think it's just, it's a show that will make me laugh out loud once or twice an episode, mm-hmm. but make me want to get away for the rest of it. Yeah, it's... I've watched it, and I found that I couldn't watch it more than once. Like, when I went back looking, like, can I watch this again? Mm. Pretty much every episode was like, eh, I don't feel like watching this again. So, I don't know. It's, you know, I appreciate what it is. You know, it's made by women and, you know, women of color involved in it. And, Mm. you know, that's nice. And, you know, not taking anything away from that, but just taking away the outside trappings of it as a show. Mm. It's like, okay, this probably doesn't really need to exist as a show it covers some it has a really dark twist at the very end that kind of is the 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 source of all of birdie's depression and anxiety right i don't know we talked about it enough we should get on to the good cartoons yeah, yeah. let's talk about something less depressing like the adams family yeah <laughs> okay so yes the adams family uh this cartoon uh, is created by dan levy and I guess they're kind of evergreen, the Adams Family, right? This is a property that stays in the public consciousness, but I'll go over it anyway. The Adams Family, it started as a series of comic strips by cartoonist Charles Adams in 1938. And uh, many of them were first published in uh, New Yorker magazine. Uh, the Adams Family as characters, they're an affluent, close family that are overly fond of the uh, macabre, and they seem to have supernatural associates and abilities. Yeah. Yeah, and, and like the joke is that their weirdness plays off the normality of the rest of the world. Uh, but they themselves don't view themselves as weird. Right. Uh, a live-action TV series was adapted in 1964, and then a lot of people like you and me probably better know them from the uh, movies, uh, the first one, 1991. Mm-hmm. And those prove popular enough uh, that we've seldom been without a live action or an animated series since. Well, that's why, like you said, an evergreen property that's like in the public conscious. Those movies are why, because I, I looked this up and like that, that um, uh, property was dormant for pretty much 
like almost 20 years. Um, and there was actually mm-hmm. doubt when they wanted to make that movie that it was relevant enough that it would be successful. Yeah. But they took a gamble and now it is a staple of pop culture because those movies yeah, yeah. are great. Oh, yeah, yeah. But we're talking about the pre-dormancy now. <laughs> yeah, we're talking about probably the last property before it went dormant. Yeah, yeah. There's an animated series from Hanna-Barbera in 1973. So the, the actual composition of the family, uh, again, probably most people know, but uh, it includes the frivolous Gomez and the sultry Morticia. They're a deeply romantic pair. And then there's their children, Wednesday, a dour girl, and Pugsley, a rascally boy. There's Gomez's goofy brother, Fester. Or Morticia's, depending on which canon. Oh. In the oh, original, yeah, yeah, in the original sitcom, she's Morticia's brother. Oh, yeah, yeah? Yeah. Hmm. I, I don't suppose it matters, really. No. Uh, there's a, a cook and potion brewer, Grandmama. And then there's a uh, Frankenstein's monster-like manservant named Lurch. <laughs> Thing. A disembodied hand in a box. And Cousin It, who is entirely covered in hair. Side note. Yeah. By complete coincidence, Mm -hmm. the actor who played Cousin It in the live-action TV series just recently passed away. Oh. So, condolences to his family. Hmm. I I totally didn't know that when I, I assigned this. Hmm. So, oh, the thing, uh, the the disembodied hand in a box. So because, uh, like you, I'm most familiar with the 90s movies, it's really weird in this cartoon to see Thing possessing a forearm. For me, it was weird to just not see him as a hand. Well, same thing, right? That Yeah, usually, like, in, in the movies, he's had his, you know, forearm green screened out, and he was, like, this crawling hand. Yeah. But this, this... Uh, owes back to the television, the live action television show where it was just cheap effect to have a hand come out of a box. Yeah. I had the same thing as you. Like I had just a really hard time. Like, Oh, right. Thing wasn't always just a spider hand. Yeah. Yeah. That was a a big deal in the movies. Mm -hmm. Uh, Ordinarily the Adams family reside in a spooky mansion, but the premise of this cartoon is that they're in a mobile home that either resembles their mansion or maybe it's their mansion on wheels. It's wacky races, you know. This is what Hanna-Barbera did. They would always give their characters themed vehicles to drive around and have adventures in. Mm. Well, at least it gives the show uh, a new premise for the Adams Family, that they're on the road and they're like on an extended vacation to see America. Mm. So this episode sees the Adamses going to New York. And, you know, as I said, ordinarily the rest of the world is normal. But early on we see... That it's not, because uh, the toll booth operator to the Lincoln Tunnel finds a ne'er-do-well, or maybe a homeless man, named Benny, sleeping inside the giant safe in his booth. So already things are a little weird. After he kicks him out, the Adams terrify the operator by having Thing, the disembodied hand, pay the toll. And so they go through, and meanwhile, uh, Benny the the no good Nick catches a ride on the back of their vehicle. And uh, by the way, this is this part of the cartoon is the only scene with cousin it where uh, he's disappointed to find out that a toll is required and not a troll. Yeah. 
Cousinet was always like here and there in the Adam family. Yeah. Like he's not a, he's like a, a side character. I kind of enjoyed watching this like pillar of hair double over and cry though. <laughs> yeah. So they're they're in New York and Fester assumes that Central Park is a trailer park. Gomez takes Benny for the owner of the park and so haggles him upward to paying $100 so they could stay there. <laughs> Elsewhere in the park, we're introduced to another shady character named Ripoff. Oh. And he yeah, he uh, tries to steal candy from a baby, but it turns out to be a sting. The baby is a policeman and the carriage is a weird little police car. <laughs> what a ridiculous yeah, concept. Pretty, it is, isn't it? Like <laughs> The world is crazier than the Adams family in this. <laughs> anyway, Ripoff escapes and he meets Benny and they, they're apparently associates. And when Ripoff learns about the Adams and their money, he plots to get more. So meanwhile, the Adams are like setting up, right? And Fester's in a riding mower that he drives around to dig a moat around their mobile home. <laughs> it's a little weird since the opening credits show a mechanical arm that comes out of their vehicle and digs the moat. Uh, that's exactly what I was thinking, yeah. Eh. Uh, maybe the opening credits weren't made yet, though. <laughs> so anyway, uh, Ripoff and, and Benny. Benny introduces uh, his partner as Ripoff. Uh, they sell Gomez a fake deed to the Museum of Natural History for $1,000. <laughs> so the Adams is this uh, they cause all kinds of havoc at the museum and at the park. Uh, and at the museum, uh, Gomez points out a scene recreation, uh, recreation that is, of his ancestor Van Dyke Adams buying Manhattan from the natives. This will come up later. Okay. So anyway, still deluded, Gomez buys a fake deed to the park itself from Ripoff and Benny. And the con artists see the great gobs of money in Gomez's safe. And Gomez announces the combination aloud as he opens it. <laughs> so later they sneak in and try to steal it, but the mobile house is full of dangerous animals that thwart them. Anyway, the police come to arrest Benny, Ripoff, and the Adams family. But when Gomez presents his hands to be handcuffed, the policeman spots a piece of paper up his sleeve. And the dialogue goes like this. Uh... It looks like some sort of ancient Indian document. Well, by George, it must have fallen into my sleeve at the museum. Yeah. It uh, proves that Chief Powhatan sold Central Park. It, ha it, it reads Central Park to the Adamses. <laughs> Implying that it was a park before... <sighs> Yeah, uh, yeah. The, or that's what it was known as, or I don't yeah. know. It's I I can't believe it. <laughs> well, yeah, I can't. I cannot believe it. <laughs> oh, this must have this must have fallen up my sleeve when we were at the museum. I mean, that's so you know. <laughs> that is what an inept criminal says. Yeah, that is like a three a.m. script finish. Is what that is. <laughs> <right>? <laughs> Heck, I don't know. Anyway, so the, the policeman bargains uh, to get rid of the horrible new owners of the park. And they leave under condition that the animals at the zoo be allowed to roam free one day a week. Hmm. And, and there you go. So 
the designs in the show are pretty accurate to the original comic strip. Yeah, the comic strip, not necessarily the TV show or the, the sitcom. Right, right. Um, I especially like Fester's look. Yeah. Uh, sometimes the animators forget his dark circles under his eyes. That's too bad. I like him. Yeah. Morticia's face bugs me. It's a little weird. Like the, the bit of hair that goes in front of her cheek. Well, her facial construction is like so weirdly oblong and squished in weird directions. Yeah. Like, I don't know. Maybe this is just going back to um, uh, Charles Adams' original cartoons. I don't know. It is. Uh, like, I, yeah, I think Gomez and uh, uh, Fester are the best ones of them. Yeah, Gomez. I have a weird time reconciling because my... My mental image of Gomez is very suave. It's either uh, John Aston or Raul Julia. Um, And I have a hard time remembering that he's really like his head is just a sphere with a mop of hair kind of plastered on top. He's in his size is so inconsistent in this cartoon. Yeah. Sometimes he looks a full foot shorter than Morticia. And other times he's almost as tall as Lurch. (laughs) Man. Do you know what the worst Gomez Adams is? What is the worst one? There is a movie, I, I, I guess it was direct-to-video or maybe television, called Adams mm-hmm. Family Reunion. Yeah. Tim Curry. Bad at it, huh? Tim, look, we all love Tim Curry, mm-hmm. but his voice is so distinct. Right. It doesn't work. Like, I can't see him as... Gomez Adams, like the the fourth or fifth iteration iteration of Gomez Adams, he's Tim mm. Curry. It's like y- right. you're just Tim Curry. Like stop it. Right, he's imprisoned by his voice. Kind it's, of. It's like it's like people who are big fans of Tony J. You know, mm. it's kind of like there's no mystery behind Tony J.'s voice. You know, it's him again. Yeah, but yeah, it's kind of interesting. Like there's. You mentioned all those iterations. They're all so different. Yeah. Like th- this one's uh, voiced by uh, Lenny Weinrib, who's Scrappy Doo. Yeah. And when you know that, you can hear it for sure. Yeah. Um, he has this whiny sort of voice. Right. Like he talks like this all the time. You, like, you know what I think of him as? Hmm? Uh, like I think of him as John Stewart's lazy go-to impression. <laughs> <laughs> Sort of. I sort of think, I don't know why, but the thing that comes into my head is um, there's an episode of The Simpsons where Homer is trying to uh, seduce Marge when she's not in the mood. And there's this one part where he says, what if I sing to you? And just for some reason, that statement is what I think of with this. Like, it it doesn't match up, but just for some reason, that's just what comes into my head. He's okay. He's okay. You know, uh, Wednesday is, is voiced by Jodie Foster. Actually, it's Pugsley. Is it? Yeah. It's, oh, okay. Huh. But still, that's wild. Yeah. It's also kind of a weird, like, full circle thing. Because Fester is voiced by Jackie Coogan, who is the actor who played Uncle Fester in the sitcom. Hmm. Jackie Coogan was a child actor. He was the kid in uh, Charlie Chaplin's The Kid. I think it was called The Kid. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay. And so he was a famous child actor in the silent era who then 
sort of had a bit of a resurgence when he played Uncle Fester. And now here he is in his resurgence mode alongside child actress Jodie Foster, who Mm. you were not to know in 1973 was about to become an Academy Award winning actress. For Bad News Bears. (laughs) (laughs) Actually, you know, uh, the credits on these episodes are not easy to find because everyone's just additional voices. Yeah. I, th- I think Ripoff is John Stevenson. Okay. Who is uh, Mr. Slate and Dr. Quest. Okay. He's like, hmm, he's like a voice that I can't pinpoint, right? But is just like in my consciousness from all my childhood. These things happen, yeah. Yeah, yeah. He's like, uh, was it Granok from uh, Inhumanoids? <laughs> I couldn't tell you anything about Inhumanoids. Yes, but when you hear it, like, you know it. It's like, oh, yeah, this voice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, like, this show, I expected to like this a lot hmm. uh, because of, like, the timeless Adam's Family humor. Adam's you know, Family that. is weirdly fascinating, isn't it? It's like... Yeah, it, well, th- it's it's a weird mishmash, right? Yeah. Like, like, they like dark things, but they also like misfortune, and they also like their own misfortune. Yeah. It's kind of like you're constantly waiting for someone to do the Adams Family right. Because, mm. like, those first two movies, Adams Family and Adams Family Values, were done pretty well. Like, I, I, it sort of annoys me that Uncle Fester is played by Christopher Lloyd with a rather deep voice. And it does, huh? And my Uncle Fester has a high voice. But I think those movies are so good. And it introduced so many people to the concept of the Adams family. And they keep making more Adams family and it doesn't ever reach that height again. And it's sort of like somebody do it right again. Cause it's a good idea. I think the TV series is pretty good. I mean, I didn't avidly watch it, mm. but we have a friend who was a big fan of it. So when I'd find myself over there, we'd, you know, sit down and watch it. It was pretty good. And it was a weird kind of hybrid of the movies and, uh, and like I, th- I think uh, Fester had a high voice in it. Yes, yeah. Jackie Coogan has. A, I'm not even going to try to do an impression of it, but he has a pretty high squeaky voice. He does mm. in everything except the movies where he's Christopher Lloyd. Which is funny because I like I like Christopher Lloyd a lot. In oh movies. yeah, no, like I hey I yeah. I got no problem with Christopher Lloyd. It's just sort of my view of Uncle Fester is that he has a high voice. You know who they did a recent. Uh, a computer animated Adams Family movie, um, yeah. and they gave Uncle Fester that thing in his ashes. Okay, like, ugh, don't do that. Yeah, it sounds pretty annoying. You know who I want to play Uncle Fester? I want them to make another live action Adams Family movie just so this actor can play Uncle Fester. Mm-hmm. Eugene Merman. Hmm. Which one is he? He is best known as the voice of Gene in Bob's Burgers. Okay. And if you look at a picture of him, he's got that kind of plump look to him. And okay. you just shave his head, and that voice that Gene has is the perfect high whine. I don't like Gene as a character, but that voice would work great for Uncle Fester. So somebody do another hmm. Adam's Family and cast Eugene Merman as Uncle Fester. Yeah, and learn the lessons from this one. Because as, as I was going to say, I, I expected that I would like this. And, you know, it was kind of just any Hanna-Barbera cartoon. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so. Like, my impression of it was tainted 
immediate, well, I, I shouldn't say tainted, but like sort of, I had my idea of what this was going to be right away mm. when yeah. during the opening credits, every person immediately reacted in terror upon seeing them. Oh yeah. And in the opening sequence, when they're driving down the road and there's a truck painting a line down the middle of the road, like the median. Mm-hmm. And they're like, Oh, look at that. It's a nightmare on wheels. And they just like scurry off the road. And there's a visual gag where all the cars are following the line and they follow them off the road. Mm. But that idea where like the Adams family is supposed to be a slow burn where you're like, Oh, hello guy. And then you're like, Oh, this is getting weirder. The more time I'm spending with these people. Whereas this is like, as soon as anybody sees them, they're like, yeah. I think that's like, uh, when they say that it's the, the person who gets punched in the stunt, who sells the stunt. Hmm. If they're better, it's funnier, right? Like, there's also a lot of gags that's just the Adams family being weird, and that's not what's really funny about them. Yeah. Anyway, um, it was okay. I'll say that. It's much. I'm, okay is a probably a higher opinion of it than I, I don't know. Like I said, there's these Hanna Barbera things where they just put people in a car, and I don't know. Right, right. It's like it's like I mentioned earlier the Homestar Runner, you know. Hey, limousine let's make a cartoon about them they're flying mm. around in space it's like mm. that's the idea like we have this property okay let's put them on a road trip okay well let's follow that up with another property that was adapted into a cartoon yeah return to the planet of the apes this is a show about some apes in an ape themed car going on a road trip across a, no <laughs> yeah. this is a cartoon that is based on the first two planet or the first two apes movies planet of the apes Mm. movies i guess it would be it's planet of the apes and beneath the planet of the apes there were a number more but uh mostly they took um the first two planet of the apes it was originally a novel by a french author uh pierre i don't know how to pronounce name i think his name i think it's boule which was famously made into a 1968 movie starring uh, noted gun nut Charlton Heston. And the concept of it is that it's these astronauts who have been in space for a long time and land on this planet to discover that it is ruled by apes who subjugate humans. And there's a twist at the end. This movie, or this cartoon, is that concept. Um, It's these three astronauts, uh, Bill, Judy, and... Jeff. Jeff, thank you. Yeah. Bill, these three astronauts, Bill, Judy, and Jeff, who have been in space, like, testing, I guess they've been testing whether you can travel forward in time mm. by going through space long enough. Worked too well. Well, yeah, I mean, I would say it worked too well even when they were testing it because they ended up thinking that they had gone, like, something like 120 years into the future. Mm. And I'm like, okay, good test, but, like... Yeah. Maybe maybe a week. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but through some bizarre mishap, they end up going uh, forward over 2,000 years into the future hmm. uh, and land on a planet that looks just like Earth. Hmm. But they end up in a desert, and they're not sure exactly where they are, um, and just kind of go walking. Meanwhile, in a separate sequence, there's a sort of a a congressional or parliamentary meeting uh, among 
these humanoid apes mm. who are discussing whether they should just wholesale exterminate humanoids. Um, apparently humanoids, as they call them, exist in this world mm-hmm. and are hunted for sport or used for labor or kept as pets like animals. Yeah. And there are scientists who want to study them and a general, General Urko, who wants to just exterminate them all. And the governing body makes the decree that they will continue to treat the humanoids as they always have, as pretty much animals. But if the humanoids ever develop the ability to speak, then they must all be exterminated, according to their book of prophecy. Mm -hmm. Uh, The astronauts wander through this desert and a flash <laughs> a flash fire shows up and burns their belongings which mm. they cannot uh, apparently reach the two feet away to grab before they get burned mm. and then an earthquake opens up some cracks in the ground which swallows judy um before disappearing yeah. uh the two men I guess don't see it or don't hear Judy saying that she's being sucked down because once she's gone, they are baffled as to where she could have possibly gone. Mm. They encounter a cave with humans in it. Yeah. They meet up with a, they, (laughs) there's a montage of them, I guess, being nursed back to health after days in the desert. Right. Uh, And then they talk to this lady Um, who is able to repeat their names and despite apparently not having the ability to speak up until this point, has the wherewithal to say that her name is Nova. Hmm. And at this point, some apes, a military train of apes show up to capture humanoids, human humanoids, let's say. Okay. They are gassed. Bill is captured. Jeff escapes with Nova. They are brought to the ape city, which is called ape city. And the scientists, led by Dr. Zayas, right. uh, are allowed to have their first pick of the six finest humanoids uh, for scientific experimentation and research. Mm-hmm. Um, this is a serial program, and this is the point where the episode ends. Right. Full of mystery. Yeah. Um, boy, the pacing of this is off. Yeah. Boy, the pacing of this is off. <laughs> I, the, 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 too much wandering in the desert for you? I made a note of this. Yeah. There is three and a half minutes of the astronauts walking through the desert with nothing happening. Mm. And then when the astronauts are rescued, their entire recovery process right. is like a one minute wa- montage. The the animation in this is very limited. Oh, yeah. Um, which is probably based on... I actually looked up the Planet of the Apes, and Fox really liked the Planet of the Apes. It was making them a lot of money, and they just kept demanding sequels. There ended up being five movies, even when it had gone past... The second movie ended with the planet being destroyed, and they wanted mm. five or three more movies after <laughs> that. Yeah. And... They wanted more and more Planet of the Apes, and they gave the makers less and less money and time to do it with each iteration. Yep. And that's what this is. It's clear they wanted to tell this story as best they could Mm -hmm. with extremely limited resources and 
they sacrificed any scenes of things happening to do it. You know, yeah, like maybe some some bad decisions here, right? Because hmm. the drawings themselves are very detailed. I love the backgrounds of this. The background yeah. art of this is beautiful. And like there's pieces that are really good. Like I think the music is borrowed straight from the movies. Mm, and you probably. It's cool. Yeah, like the music's all right. Hmm. Um I'm just thinking this could have been done so much better today when mm-hmm. people understand pacing better. Well, also animation is way cheaper to do, but ironic. Yeah. Yeah. But like three and a half minutes of walking through the desert, like we get the point. You don't need to spend that much time setting up this concept, mm. but I'm sure I haven't watched this entire show. I think it's 13 episodes. If I'm not mistaken, I could be mm. wrong. But I am sure that this story could have been told in half that easily. Yeah. I mean, maybe if they like addressed more challenges and stuff, you know, or had a little bit of dialogue while they did it, then or they maybe. could have montaged that walk through. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I'm just, I just think about the one that I go to is Adventure Time. And I'm thinking mm-hmm. about like, you know, if Finn and Jake... We're stuck in the desert and they probably have been in some episode Mm. like that would be 30 seconds. Like it wouldn't take long to set up that, you know, they, they start out healthy and end up near death. Like really, that's all you need to do. It's like, all right, let's go. And then there's like a shot of like the sky, like the sun or something. Mm -hmm. And then it's like this hard cut to the three astronauts like crawling with chapped lips and stuff it's like, Oh, there, or maybe you, you'd say some kind of like, okay, let's, well, that might be too comedic, but I'm thinking they put like, okay, there has to be fresh water around here somewhere. And then thong, like, Oh, there's no fresh water anywhere. Like you can illustrate the passage of time more effectively than just this endless sequence of walking. Given that it's at the start too. Uh, they could have better established the characters because uh, yeah. between those three characters, there's race Bannon and then there's two other capable people. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Like these characters are so, and I mean, they were obviously, you know, this is voice acting when it hadn't quite been established yet. And they're trying to do it dramatically, which mm. cartoons were not dramatic at this point. And so they're like, you know, there was obviously some direction of you've been in the desert and you're near death. And so everything they say is like, uh, I'm so weak. Uh. Mm. And I understand it to some extent, but I'm just, I don't know. I'm, I guess I'm just looking at this in, with too modern an eye because, mm. but, but I'm, I think the problems with this are obvious, like the pacing. And, and like I said, it's, it's because of the limited budget. Like they couldn't. They couldn't animate exciting things happening. And so they had to kind of skip it. Yeah. And there's like some weird still rotoscoping too, right? Like the Jeeps yeah. and stuff are, are rotoscoped. It reminds me to some extent of those Ralph Bakshi Lord of the Rings movies where they would just be orcs marching. And then minutes after you've gotten the point that there's a lot of orcs, they're still going. Mm. And that kind of happens here too, where the humans, the humanoids see the astronauts and then there's like multiple shots of silhouettes running around in the caves like in a panic <laughs> i thought that was funny like i think 
uh, something like this could even be made now where it would be pretty good, but you would, <laughs> you, you wouldn't do some stuff like that. Like that, that panicked run is the same run three times. If I remember correctly. Yeah. I don't think you'd repeat that. Right. You'd probably fill it in with more dialogue really, but, um, well, yeah, like, like I said, limited animation, like there's, yeah. there's this silhouetted sequence again, silhouette. So they don't have to draw any detail mm. of, uh, Bill and Judy walking pretty close together. And then there's a space and then Jeff behind them. Mm. That same order is shown again at a distance in reverse. And mm. it's like the same cycle of animation. Mm. Just, you know, whatever. Or, or, you know, there's reaction shots of their faces where they're like, they're just completely static. Right. Limited resources. Um, and so they just drew it out for, tried to use their limited resources for dramatic effect of like, mm -hmm. oh, look at how endless this desert is. You, you know, it's kind of funny you're talking about the <laughs> limited resources. So I, I watched the next episode as well. Yeah. And the aesthetic uh, is just real world a lot of the time. Uh -huh. So like Ape City has just like human buildings. Right. Um, or... Like they, they they transferred stuff over from the movies and TV series where Doctor Zira and Cornelius wear their like their scientist outfits, those green robes, right? Right. And and like the the soldier gorillas have their strange outfits, but then there's like a TV crew there that is just wearing like cardigans and slacks. <laughs> and yeah, and the, the vehicles are just straight up Earth vehicles too. Oh yeah, like jeeps and like trucks and stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I understand that the, the novels are supposed to be like that, though, where the apes are that advanced. Yeah. Um, I looked this up, and this was a... The original screenplay for Planet of the Apes was actually done by Rod Sterling, the creator mm. of Twilight Zone. Makes sense. Based on this book. And, mm. and yeah, they made some concessions to, like, make it... Because the twist of the... Planet of the Apes, which everybody kind of knows at this point, is that sure. this is Earth 2,000 years in the future. Mm. And so I think they've made some concessions to make it, or depending on which version of Planet of the Apes you're looking at, they made some concessions to make it look a little more Earth-like, mm. as opposed to a completely alien uh, society. Yeah. Uh, th and this one, you know, like that's not a surprise to anybody watching this cartoon and, and uh, at, at the time even, right? Like, and, and, they just outright show that uh, that ape debate, right? Because it's yeah. not a surprise that it, that's probably another problem with this is that it uh, is is retreading ground. You know, nothing's fresh in it. I guess the only thing I could think of is that you know maybe the movies were not necessarily marketed at children, and this was mm. like the last frontier of hooks that they can get this apes franchise into. True, you know, I think. I was thinking as I looked at the uh, the art style of this that I would expect that uh, Jamie Hewlett and the various animators who've done work for the band Gorillaz probably have mm -hmm. some influence from this. Maybe. Maybe, yeah. It's it's produced by Tipati Freeling. Like, it's Fritz Freeling yeah. as a producer of this. Let's see, what else here? One thing, <laughs> one thing that made me laugh was at the end, I was looking for the voice credits. Mm-hmm. And there was none that I really recognized, mm. but there was a credit to a fellow with a PhD for anthropological dialogue research. 
<laughs> yeah. I was like, what? <laughs> what? What did they research for this? Did they research the idea that Nova, despite not being able to talk, has a name? Right. Like, I don't know. It's just weird. Actually, one of the voices, uh, Henry Corden. Yeah. He does uh, Cornelius and General Urko. Okay. And he's uh, one of the many people that have done Fred Flintstone over the years. Oh, okay. So... When I was watching that second episode, I could only hear Fred Flintstone when General Urko said stuff. <laughs> I wow. think all humans should be destroyed. <laughs> oh, that's great. Yeah, you mm. gotta love it when your your image is forever tainted. Hmm. Oh well. A weird time capsule for sure. A weird time capsule, yeah. It's it looks like a 70s cartoon. Like, you know, you, you're you not surprised by what you see here. I I just think about this story. And, you know, there have been various reboots fairly mm. recently of Planet of the Apes. I'm just thinking, you know, if somebody had the idea to make a Planet of the Apes cartoon now, they could probably do it pretty well, I would say. Hmm. Maybe kind of borrow the things that work in the style, too. Yeah. And, you know... I guess maybe I should have given you Mission Magic. <laughs> but well, I, I think that should lead us into uh, what we're going to do uh, next week. Yeah. So next week, uh, we here at Animation Celery will be celebrating Mother's Day. Mm-hmm. And unlike our previous shows, we're sharing one assignment. We're going to watch the 2012 movie... Wolf Children by Mamoru Hosoda. Yeah, a movie. It's the first time we've watched a movie on here. The first time we've both watched the same thing. Yeah, I've seen it before, but mm -hmm. I'll be very interested to see what you think about it. Yeah, I'll give it a shot for sure. So yeah, we'll be doing that. It's a Mother's Day special on Animation Celery. So that does it. Thank you everyone for watching. We'd love to hear from you. You can find me at DrabSwatch on Twitter. And you can find me on Twitter at ACMatsy. And so until next time, when we will talk about wolf children, remember the Celery Stalker slogan. Mm, by George, it must have fallen into my sleeve in the museum.